I'm a professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Kirby Runyon, who is a senior staff scientist in planetary geology at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Carrie. It's great to be here. We are recording on August 15th, 2022, so we're doing this remotely. I don't have work this afternoon, so I am indulging in a Down Easter unfiltered cider, uh, which is a local thing here. What are you drinking? I've got Hendrix Neptunia gin, and I'm about to pour myself a nice gin and tonic here with it. It's bottled in Scotland. Scotland, of course, has not been a small contributor in the historical developments of things in astronomy. So I'm just going to go a little bit light on the gin because it is in the afternoon, <laughs> but I do enjoy a good gin and tonic. So cheers. Yeah, cheers. My cider is super delicious. A lot of times on this show, I have undelicious drinks. So this is a real treat for me. <laughs> How is your drink? It is delicious and very botanically the way I like my G&Ts. Excellent. And I should mention that I'm, I'm using Fever Tree Tonic Water, which has the best uh, quinine to H2O ratio, in my opinion. <laughs> well, then it's a, a total win. Yeah, win-win. So I believe this may be the most controversial episode of SpacePod. <laughs> We're talking about something people have really strong feelings about. That's right, we're talking about what is and what is not a planet. And I'm delighted to have you here, Dr. Runyon, because you have strong feelings about this. <laughs> oh, thanks. I have strong feelings, but I hope I can back it up with some logic and sound reason. Absolutely. We've had several episodes on Titan recently, so I thought we might start there. Titan is an amazing place with a thick atmosphere and rivers and lakes made out of methane. And most people would call Titan a moon since it orbits the planet Saturn. But what would you call it? Well, I would also call Titan a moon, but in addition to being a moon, it's also a planet. And what kind of planet is it? Well, if you wanted to start sticking adjectives in front of that, I might call it an icy satellite with an atmosphere, because obviously it's got this icy shell. We think it has a subsurface liquid water ocean. In addition to liquid methane and ethane lakes on the surface, it's got a thick atmosphere, one and a half times the density of Earth. It is a planet orbiting a big planet, in this case, Saturn. So it doesn't stop being a moon just because it's also a planet. And can you talk more about this geophysical definition of a planet you've been advocating for? Right. So a number of us in the field in planetary science really believe that a body in space's intrinsic properties really ought to define what it is to be a planet. Now, I'm a planetary geologist, and my specific interest is in the geomorphology, which is the science of landscapes. Alien worlds throughout our solar system have beautiful and strange landscapes, and it's the job of a geomorphologist to look at all the clues that indicate how that beautiful landscape got to be the way it is. So for a geologist and a geomorphologist, you know, it doesn't really matter a whole lot what something is orbiting or if it's orbiting anything at all. If it's got enough gravity to be round and it's not a star and it's never been a star, then it's a planet. And that seems to be a really useful definition for those in the geoscience business now, I don't begrudge those who say that a planet needs to be defined as orbiting a star and it needs to be the most gravitationally dominant object in its orbit. For people who use the IAU planet definition, that's fine if that definition is useful to them, but I don't think that they should claim that their definition is the only in-use definition by professionals in the field. If I think about any sort of sci-fi TV show like Star Trek, 
or Star Wars, people, they go to planets, right? A planet is a place they can like walk around and has mountains and it might have ice or it might have dunes. It might have all types of things, but we kind of know what a planet is. It's like a place that's big enough for you to explore. Right. And I feel like your definition you just described kind of falls into line with that. I think there's a strong intuitive element to the geophysical planet definition that many of us use. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars fan myself. There's at least two instances where the protagonists are on moons, but they're definitely planetary moons. So Yavin 4, where the rebel base is, and A New Hope, that's orbiting the giant planet Yavin. But I would say that Yavin 4 is still a planet. It's a satellite planet. Uh, and then also in Return of the Jedi, when Luke is out with Leia in the Ewok village and they're talking about, oh, by the way, we're brother and sister. Luke says that he can sense Vader's presence here on this moon. He didn't say on this planet, although he would not have been wrong to say here on this planet, I sense Vader's presence. So what things would you consider planets in our solar system? Planets in our solar system would include anything large enough to be round by its own self-gravity that has never been a star. So the sun's not a planet, but the classical eight or nine planets are certainly planets, and all the round moons are planets. And if you go from Earth out to Pluto, it's I believe that's 19 round moons. And then if you start including the round moons of lots of the dwarf planets, which, by the way, dwarf planets are planets too, if you start including the round moons of the dwarf planets, you're in the low 20s of known round moons. If you include all the dwarf planets, and, and I'm taking a dwarf planet to just mean something that's small. It's a little. Pluto's a dwarf planet, but that doesn't make it not a planet. I know the IAU would disagree. The IAU takes it a step further and completely bashes logic to pieces and says that a dwarf planet is not a planet. I'm sorry, that's an adjective modifying a noun. <laughs> a dwarf planet is a planet just like a giant planet is a planet, just like a terrestrial planet is a planet. So there's about 130 objects in the solar system large enough to be considered dwarf planets, which is about 400 kilometers in diameter and larger. Below that, so for instance, the, oh my gosh, back to Star Wars, Mimas, <laughs> this moon of Saturn, aka the Death Star moon, because its giant crater Herschel looks like the super laser on the Death Star, its diameter is 398 kilometers, and it just barely squeezes in as a satellite planet because it's round by self-gravity. So 400 kilometers is a little bit of a squishy border, but if you take that definition, then we know of over 150 planets in just our own solar system. Most of those planets are dwarf planets, which is really instructive in and of itself to realize that natural processes, quote unquote, like to make more small things of a given category than big things of a given category. If you take a brick outside and you use a sledgehammer and you bash it, and then you count all the pieces and measure their sizes, you would notice that you have far more small fragments than large fragments. Similarly, most stars in the universe are what we call M-dwarf stars. M-dwarf stars are still stars, and they are far and away more prevalent than the really big blue supergiants, the OB spectral type stars. And yet, no one's debating that whether or not dwarf stars are stars or not. Everyone knows they're stars. They're fusing hydrogen into helium inside their cores. Nature just likes to make more small things than big things, and most planets in our solar system are dwarf planets, or satellite planets, about the same size. And if you extrapolate from our solar system to gain inferences about planets not just in the rest of our Milky Way galaxy, but the entire universe, probably dwarf planets are the most common type of planet in the entire universe. And if most of them form a long ways away from their stars, and they're made out of ices, it's very probable that when they formed in our solar system, that was about four and a half billion years ago, 
that there was lots of subsurface liquid water in contact with reasonably warm rock, which is basically all the ingredients you need for it to be a habitable environment for certain types of microbes. That's different from saying that life arose there, but it is a place where life could, could survive or even thrive. And so I think there's huge astrobiological implications for just having this, this mental paradigm shift for realizing that, wow, maybe dwarf planets in our solar system and the universe are the places where we could expect other life to have arisen if it arose there at all. And back to your earlier point, it's not like there's a fundamental difference in the way that dwarf planets are created versus big planets, to our knowledge. So pretty much all planets, we think, form when gas drag of solid particles in the early nebula, in the primordial nebula of, of our solar system and, and probably every planetary system, allows for large chunks to coalesce, eventually creating enough self-gravity to attract other particles until you build objects maybe a few kilometers across. In fact, the New Horizons spacecraft, which the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab built and flies and operates for NASA, flew by Pluto and Charon in 2015. And on New Year's Day 2019, we flew by this object called Arakoth. It looks kind of like a snow person. It's got two lobes. One is smaller than the other one. And it's about a little over 30 kilometers long. And we think that this is like a primordial time capsule to the early solar system, showing us one instance of the, the Lego pieces, if you will, of the bigger planet Lego set, such that you'd have objects like Arakoth that themselves would have formed by this gas drag, this pebble accretion in the early nebula that then would slowly collide with each other to build much larger worlds that would eventually have the force of gravity overcome the strength of what they're made out of and pull the whole world into a sphere. And in fact, we might see a small evidence of that with Arakoth. Like I said, it's got these two lobes, a small lobe and a large lobe. And the collision between those two lobes has been modeled to be about a meter per second, which is roughly two miles per hour. You can simulate this in your own home by slowly walking into a wall and see what <laughs> it feels like. And that may have been like an arrested form of planetary development, having these two lobes collide, and then nothing else happened in the case of Arakoth, but in the case of planets from Pluto up to Jupiter, and even smaller than Pluto, these sorts of low-velocity collisions would have continued until you had a geologically complex world. So from a geologist's point of view, again, you know, there's a kind of a smooth transition between dwarf planets and what I'm calling planet planets. A geologic complexity is certain, certainly part of this. If you look at everything in the universe that's non-living, planets are the most complex structures. If anyone in the audience is familiar with scientific notation, it's pretty much everything in the mass range from about 10 to the 20th to about 10 to the 29th kilograms, that's the mass range of planets, and they're the most complex things there are. If you go less massive than that, you have things like asteroids and simpler rocks in space. If you go much larger than 10 to the 29th kilograms, then you're starting to get into the star regime. And stars, even though they're very large, are actually pretty simple. You've got some fairly homogeneous layers. There's nuclear fusion going on in the middle, and then you've got convection going on and radiation inside the stars. If you go larger than that, then you get into the most massive things we have. The most dense things are black holes. And as mysterious as they are, and as bizarre as general relativity is, and the interactions between general relativity and quantum mechanics is, they're very simple objects. Their mass is contained, as I understand it, at an infinitesimally small singularity point, and they've got a lot of gravity. They're very simple. But in this logarithmic continuum, planets are the most complex things in the universe, other than things that are alive. 
that we know of. And it's because we've got, on Earth, we've got plate tectonics. On Venus, we think we have mantle plumes, these plumes of hot rock that come up from the core and then kind of explode as volcanoes on the surface. We've got Jupiter's planet moon Io that's spewing its guts into space because it's the most volcanically active planet in the solar system, even more active than Earth. On Earth, we've got plate tectonics that are plates that are now inside Earth that have been cut off and that are like doing a nosedive towards the core. And in a billion years, they might be recycled into a new continent. Just the amount of complexity is really, really huge. And the word planet is a nice word that encapsulates that concept. And to say that Pluto doesn't clear its orbit, and therefore it's not a planet, it's, it's just kind of ridiculous. And it kind of ignores the geologic complexity on a planet like Pluto. So according to this definition, Pluto is a planet. Titan's a planet. Ceres is a planet in the asteroid belt. Yeah, and, and, even, and, and even the IAU calls Ceres a dwarf planet. That's right. The difference <laughs> is that I consider dwarf planets to be planets. And Earth's moon is also a planet? Earth's moon is my favorite planet. <laughs> Why is this issue of all issues so important to you? <laughs> Fundamentally, I don't know. I feel... <laughs> Maybe it's an emotional reaction that I don't know why I feel the way I do. But, you know, words are important, Carrie. Words kind of shape our concepts, our perception, our interpretation of reality. The words you use matter. You know, it wasn't until I started calling small, round things in space planets, I finally recognized that, wow, dwarf planets are the most common type of planet. And then I started thinking about habitability. I don't think I would have gone down this mental trail of scientific thought had I not used the word planet to describe things 400 kilometers in diameter and larger that aren't stars. And from a public perspective, in third grade, I remember being taught about the sun and nine planets. And I think my teacher, to her credit, even threw in the asteroid belt. Now, we hadn't yet discovered the first Kuiper belt object, which I think was discovered in 1994, or the non-Pluto Kuiper belt object. But I want our population on Earth to be scientifically literate and scientifically interested. And I want people to have an accurate perception of the world around them. And if you make this artificially simple claim that the solar system has a sun and eight planets, that's kind of, that's, that's like lying. It's like, well, I mean, that's some of what's in the solar system. But scientifically, arguably, some of the more interesting things are a lot smaller than that. And from a geologist's perspective, there's certainly planets. Maybe if we use the planet to be much more broad and inclusive, it would turn people on to science more and they could kind of just using the word planet to describe all these round things in space in our solar system could be a driver for scientific literacy and engagement with space exploration. So maybe that's why I'm interested in it. I, but again, it, it's more of an emotion. I feel passionate about it. I think it's great. You made an interesting point in one of your papers about this idea that like, what if students have to memorize all the planets and you compared yeah. it to the periodic table. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I kid you not, some people argue against an inclusive planet definition because then there'd be too many planets in our solar system to memorize. Eight or nine planets, sure, you can memorize that if you're a third grader or a fourth grader. But if you, if you include like 150 plus planets, that's too many to memorize. And I'm thinking, since when is the ability to memorize a long list a criterion for how we categorize things or what we teach? The periodic table is brilliantly organized based on the number of protons, the atomic number in each element. And the number of protons determines how the electrons are arranged and therefore what the chemical properties are, such that every column, vertical column on the periodic table, those elements tend to have similar, not identical, but similar chemical properties. Teaching a student that the periodic table is arranged by the number of protons in the nucleus and then how that affects the 
electrical properties and therefore the chemical properties is, I would argue, the correct way of teaching the structure of the periodic table. For students to memorize the names of 92 naturally occurring elements, they're not going to have the insight into what an element is and how the table is arranged the way it is. And in fact, you're, you're masking the nature of the universe. You know, our planets are generally named after pagan deities or mythological deities. And okay, so you memorize a list, you haven't learned anything about the structure of the solar system or how planets form. And so teaching students that a planet is, you know, something that's round in space that's less massive than a star. By the way, what's a star? That's, you know, that's next week's lesson. And we're less massive than that. And look at the, the, the variety of geology and geophysics and atmospheric science that happens on just planets. Pluto has these nitrogenized glaciers. Jupiter has these ridiculous hurricanes that last for centuries. Earth and Mars have, have or had glaciers. The moon and Mercury are covered in impact craters and Io is erupting all the time. I mean, so much, so much diversity in the word planet, just like there's so much diversity in the periodic table. Hydrogen is very different from, from lithium or potassium that explodes if you drop it in water, as my high school physics teacher once did. And so you just gain so much insight by understanding the structure and organization of something versus memorizing a bunch of names. So don't worry about memorizing all the planets. If you feel like, if you feel like you just have to memorize a list of names of stuff in the solar system, maybe pick the top 20 coolest things that you just are most drawn to. Yeah, and for example, everyone who's taken a chemistry class might know hydrogen and helium and carbon. We might know the biggest planets, maybe Jupiter, Saturn, but then we also know the, the complexity that exists on smaller scales as well. Right. Like, don't memorize all the 130 dwarf planets, but learn a few and learn what their category is and, and what makes them, you know, be icy and orbit so far from the sun. You were co-author on a paper that studied kind of the historical usage of planet towards asteroids. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so Phil Metzger, who is a faculty member at the University of Central Florida, led this paper called The Reclassification of Asteroids from Planets to Non-Planets. And he's basically saying that, you know, when asteroids were first discovered in the 1800s, for about 150 years, from, about, from, roughly, from roughly 1800 to the 1950s, asteroids were considered planets. And you can actually go find old textbooks and educational material that list dozens of planets in our solar system, a lot of which were sandwiched between Mars and Jupiter. The asteroid belt was in the process of being discovered. But some scientists who kind of follow the IAU planet definition anachronistically claim now is that because we've discovered all these objects orbiting the sun in this narrow belt between Mars and Jupiter, what we now call the asteroid belt, that, okay, they all share roughly the same orbit, so it's really crowded, therefore they can't be planets. That's historically false. Phil Metzger led the charge on going back and doing really in-depth literature reviews, looking at how the word planet was used over the course of 150 years. And when people recognize the geophysical, the intrinsic differences between these quote-unquote planets between Mars and Jupiter and the classical then known, you know, eight planets and moons, Galileo himself called the moons of Jupiter planets. It was the geophysical definition that really switched people's minds to no longer considering asteroids planets. So the IAU took a vote and decided that Pluto was technically not a planet. And the IAU is kind of the arbiter of these decisions. After that vote, I joined the IAU. I was like, I want to vote on this <laughs> if ah, it comes up again. Ah, interesting. Do you have any plans to bring it up to the IAU again? Or do you feel like as a somebody from a more geology background, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, isn't quite the place for you? So, you know, science doesn't work by voting. I believe a linguist would tell you that definitions of words usually don't even come about by voting either. 
they come about by precedent set by usage. That's something a lawyer can tell you about because legal precedent is everything in our justice system. If the IAU were to do anything, it should simply be to recognize the error of voting on definitions, rescind the planet definition, and not replace it with anything, and simply publicly acknowledge that definitions in science come about by the precedent set by the usage of experts in the field. And if so many expert planetary scientists who literally get paid to explore planets are calling things like the moon and Io and Pluto and Eris and Makemake and Ixion, if, if we're calling these things planets, then maybe that's the official definition and the voted on definition is phony. So I personally don't have any plans to bring this up to the IAU. I don't, I don't think this decision should be made by voting, but just based on the principles of academic freedom and experts and precedents. You know, there's some people that are probably disagreeing with you, some listeners right now. Do you have any like specific things to say to people who really got on board that IAU decision that Pluto was not a planet? If you agree with the IAU that, you know, dwarf planets are not planets, you have the freedom to think that. If the broad and inclusive definition of planet isn't useful to anybody, you don't have to use it. For some people who study the dynamics of planetary systems and, and orbital mechanics, maybe it really is most useful to have a definition of planet that is that basically just means you know a gravitational bully like Jupiter, <laughs> just scattering scattering smaller things than it. If that's a useful definition to you, fine, use it. But just you know extend the courtesy of allowing other types of scientists or non-scientists to use a different definition than you do. And I'd also encourage people to really think critically about like, okay, if a bunch of non-planetary scientists made a vote and that somehow became official, is it really official? I mean, think critically about this and consider, you know, changing your perspective. I guess consider changing your perspective is what I would tell someone who was really clinging on to the IAU planet definition. What would you say to somebody who was just devastated when Pluto wasn't a planet and wants to call <laughs> Pluto a planet again? Uh, if you, if you are devastated that some people don't think that Pluto is a planet, you can be encouraged that if Pluto is a planet to you, then it is a planet. And you can also be encouraged that many of us professionals in the field still consider Pluto to be a full-blooded planet. And so you can stop crying and celebrate not just Pluto, but all dwarf planets are planets. There's so many cool dwarf planets beyond Pluto, beyond Neptune, in what we call the trans-Neptunian region of the solar system. They range from, you know, like I said, 400 kilometers and bigger, and they're weird. We think that Eris, which is a dwarf planet a little bit smaller than Pluto, but more massive, is basically like Hoth. It's all white, but it's probably nitrogen snow, and I doubt there's tauntauns on it. There's other crazy moons. Some of these planets are right on the verge of either just being plain water ice on their surface or having really complex chemical or even organic, which does not refer to life, it just re refers to carbon chemistry, on its surface. And these are really exciting planets that we could potentially send even more spacecraft to go explore. I've been working over the last, wow, like four years or so, I've been working on a mission concept at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab called Interstellar Probe. And interested readers can go to our website, interstellarprobe.jhuapl.edu, and download a report that we sent to the National Academies of Sciences here in the United States. And one of the points we make is that with 130 dwarf planets besides Pluto to go explore in the solar system, we've only just begun scratching the surface of planetary exploration in our solar system. And with a modestly costed spacecraft using no 
using no huge advances in technology, we could mount a mission today to leave the solar system very quickly on a rocket like the SLS and do a, a flyby of another dwarf planet like Kweowar or Makemake or Gonggong in a very similar way to how the New Horizons spacecraft flew by Pluto. And we can begin to then delve into this field called comparative planetology, where you learn about the planets based on comparing them to other planets. We do that between Earth and Venus for understanding climate change on Earth. How did I go off on this rabbit trail? <laughs> Interstellar probe is a mission concept that could explore another dwarf planet. There's so many dwarf planets to explore that could be or have been habitable worlds at some point in the past. And I think this broad, inclusive, and I'll add happy definition of planet encourages people to be inspired and to think about the kinds of exploratory science we could do in the solar system. I really like that element of the definition is that it is exciting, right? There is lots to be explored. You and I know this as planetary scientists, mm -hmm. but the fact that there's unexplored planets really kind of communicates it. Obviously, I'm on your side. <laughs> and it's just a matter of time until we discover the first dwarf exoplanets or right. exodwarf planets. <laughs> you know, on a personal note, the thing that kind of really got me into the field as a planetary scientist was the thrill of, of discovering what other planets, other worlds look like up close. When I learned that the Voyager 1 spacecraft could have gone on to Pluto after its Saturn encounter, I was so devastated that they chose not to do that. Now, we got Titan as a result of that, so that's great. But it killed me to wait until 2015 to find out what the surface of Pluto looked like. You know, as a kid in middle school, growing up in rural Michigan, you mentioned a lot of the listeners of this podcast tend to be in rural places. I grew up sandwiched between cornfields and dairy farms in southern Michigan. And, uh, you know, being able to go to the library and get books and then later the internet and just discover what the Viking orbiter showed us of Mars. Growing up, we didn't have any new missions to Mars until 1997 when Pathfinder landed. I remember being devastated when I was in fifth grade and heard that the Galileo probe ent entered into Jupiter's atmosphere and it didn't have a camera. I wanted to see like an Empire Strikes Back cloud city of clouds on the horizon. And there was no camera on the entry probe for Galileo at Jupiter. But when I was in high school and the near Shoemaker spacecraft went to asteroid Eros, it was fascinating to see the surface of an asteroid from up close and to learn what that non-planet geological world looked like up close. So I think just, you know, the line in Star Trek, strange new worlds, discovering strange new worlds and seeing what they look like up close is really kind of the personal reason why I went into this field professionally. So if listeners have agreed with you on the geophysical definition of a planet, what can they do to support you? For anyone who really wants to help promote this happy, inclusive, and I would argue robust definition of planet, especially if there's any educators listening or students listening, find the astronomy textbook that your curriculum recommends and email or call the publisher of these textbooks and the textbook authors and ask that they include the geophysical planet definition. Point them in the direction of papers by myself, Alan Stern, and Phil Metzger, and some others, papers and conference abstracts to cite. There is growing edits on Wikipedia on the definition of planet, the geophysical planet definition. If you go to the Wikipedia pages of Pluto and other dwarf planets, I would make the case that people should feel comfortable responsibly making edits to Wikipedia that reference papers and abstracts showing that a lot of planetary scientists use the geophysical planet definition. So if you want to call to action, don't go through the IAU. I would recommend going through textbook authors, publishers, and Wikipedia. Before we talk about your fun fact, there is something fun you do on the side involving gravity. Can you talk about that? Outside of my regular employment, I also get to be a zero gravity coach for the Zero Gravity Corporation, GoZeroG.com. And 
NASA hires them to do reduced gravity experiments. I've had my own NASA-sponsored research studying the effects of impact cratering on asteroids, which have very low surface gravity on this airplane, flying in parabolas, these arcs through the sky that give you, you know, about 20 seconds of reduced gravity or zero gravity. I've also done this for fun as a tourist myself, and I've gotten to do it as a contracted coach. And I, I'm there to help make sure that people have a fun, safe time, an informed time in, in Mars gravity, moon gravity, and zero gravity, and asteroid gravity, and even dwarf planet gravity. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Runyon, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the geophysical definition of a planet, we get to hear a fun fact about Kirby. Oh, yeah. I'm not just a space nerd. I also like to go swing dancing. So. <laughs> Is there a type of swing dancing you like? Yeah, it's called Lindy Hop and East Coast Swing. I live outside Baltimore, Maryland, and there is a happy, vibrant scene. Moving increasingly into a post-COVID world, it's fun to get back on the dance floor. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I've really appreciated you talking about different definitions. This is how science is done. So thank you. Thanks, Carrie. It's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron 3030. Huge thanks to Deltron 3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com, and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.